and welcome to our first service of 2023. Today, of course, is New Year's Day, which was established as January the 1st by uh, Julius Caesar in what we would now call the year 45 BCE. Before that, the uh, Roman calendar had followed a lunar cycle, which meant that the calendar was often not in sync with the seasons, and that caused a lot of confusion. So Julius Caesar decided to fix that, and he enlisted the help of this guy, uh, Sosigenes. Here he is, Sosigenes, um, an Alexandrian astronomer who recommended following the example of the Egyptians and using a solar cycle instead. So Sosigenes was a very smart guy. He calculated that a year was 365 and a quarter days. So Caesar added 67 days to that current year, which upset a lot of people and um, made that year bigger and then started the next year on January the 1st. And from then on, New Year's Day has been January 1st. And ancient Romans would give offerings to Janus, the god of change and new beginnings in the hope of receiving good luck in the coming year. And they would also give gifts of figs and honey to their neighbors and friends. I kind of like that bit. Maybe we should do that again. Um, but of course, the new year is not part of the church calendar. It doesn't have any religious significance for us. Uh, we're still in the Christmas season. And today we are celebrating Epiphany. Now, strictly speaking, Epiphany, um, Epiphany Sunday is next week. Christmas tide runs for 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas, from Christmas Eve to January 5th. And then January 6th is Epiphany, and January 8th, of course, is the closest Sunday to that. So it should be next week. But we're going to be starting a new series then, and so we're being very radical, and we're marking Epiphany a week early. So apologies uh, to any traditionalists we have there. Actually, now I think about it, I'm not sure this is a good idea because we, uh, we lit the Advent uh, candles out of order this year and we said it would bring bad luck as a joke and the church flooded. So now I'm, I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't be doing this, but no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphania, which means to reveal or appear or manifest. Colloquially, uh, we use that word to mean realizing something for the first time or, um, you know, maybe, maybe something that's been staring us in the face and we just haven't noticed it. Um, it's that aha moment. Epiphany reminds me of these kind of graphics. I don't know if you remember these, these squiggles that you stare at for a long time and then suddenly uh, an object pops out of the background. Um, my, my brother was big into these when we were a kid. Uh, and, and once you've seen this, uh, you wonder why you've not seen it all along. Uh, and perhaps you become a little bit annoying and uh, start saying to people like your sister, um, you know, it's so obvious, back, back, back. That's not the object that pops out. They're not that good, back, back slide, please. Thank you, right, so there we go. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, you start saying, well, it's so obvious, it's, um, an elephant or whatever it is. I could never see these things actually. But the thing is with these graphics is that you have to actually believe um, that there is something there that you're just not seeing. You have to be willing to keep looking at it until you can find it for yourself. And I think epiphanies can sometimes be like that. Or maybe epiphany is more like this picture. What is this of? What is it? out you can it's not what what is it a lake and mountains 
actually it is mountains but it's a low concrete wall can you see that now mm, yeah um the thing is that we see what we expect to see oftentimes we expect to see a lake with mountains and so that's what we see um and an epiphany sometimes i think is kind of like a breakthrough when we see beyond what we're expecting to see and find what is truly there. With optical illusions like these, we have to be willing to reconsider what it is we've seen and be open to the idea that it's actually something else. The celebration of Epiphany is all about the revelation of Jesus's identity, the manifestation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. On this day, the Western church uh, focuses on the story of the Magi, the wise men who brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the infant Jesus. And these people recognize that despite appearances, uh, despite what they expected to see, this peasant child was actually a king. Meanwhile, in the Eastern church, Epiphany uh, focuses on Jesus's baptism in the River Jordan, where uh, Jesus's seemingly ordinary uh, man uh, was revealed to be the son of God. And both of these stories continue the Christmas tradition, the Christmas, sorry, the Christmas theme of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus embodies God's presence with us right here in the midst of our ordinary everyday lives, in the midst of joy and grief and wonder and anxiety and all that it is to be human. God is here. That's the message of Christmas but we don't always see it. God's presence is uniquely demonstrated in Jesus. Nevertheless, God has always been present. The world has never been God forsaken, quite the opposite. The book of Genesis poetic, poetically describes the spirit of God hovering over the primordial waters. It speaks of God shaping creation and communing with humanity. The Jewish scriptures are full of assurances that God is not far off, that we can call on God, that God loves us and is for us, and that we too are called to love God and to love one another. So in one sense, Jesus reveals what was always there, what we should have already known, but we just didn't see it. But Christmas, the incarnation, does not just mean God's present in our reality. It also means that God's reality breaks through into our experience of what it is to be human. Jesus reveals, Jesus manifests another way of living, another reality. In the incarnation, God is more than present with us. God becomes one of us. Any barrier that existed between God and humanity is gone. And Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection and ascension, they all dramatically demonstrate that fact. There is nothing that separates us from God. We are one with God and we are invited and empowered to live as the children of God in the kingdom of God right here and now. So this morning, we are going to look at the very first part of Mark's gospel, the traditional epiphany reading uh, for the Eastern church. Mark is the oldest of the four gospels, the four accounts we have of Jesus's life and teaching. And Mark's gospel doesn't include a birth narrative. There's no Christmas story in that gospel. Um, It starts dramatically with Jesus exploding onto the scene as an adult. And Kevin and Gina are going to come and read that passage to us now.
the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of, a pair of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and you am, and you, I am well pleased with you. I am well pleased. And once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw St. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Caperna, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their, in their synagogue who was possessed by impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Thanks, guys.
So Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four, four gospels, and it's very fast paced. The writer loves the word euthios, which means immediately or all at once or at once. He actually uses this word 10 times in this first chapter. Now, you probably didn't notice that as Kevin and Gina were reading because the new international version, which they read from, actually deletes that word because it just sounds um, weird to us to keep saying immediately, immediately when Jesus went into the synagogue and immediately a man got up and so on. But Mark creates a sense of urgency. Something new and amazing is happening here, and we need to take notice. We need to see it. Matthew and Luke take Mark's gospel, and they kind of slow it down. They add parables and healings and other stories that Mark doesn't include. And in particular, they add a beginning and an end. They add the Christmas story, and they add um, stories about the resurrection. The Gospel of John, of course, is a completely different type of, of gospel. It's more philosophical and uh, cosmological. It starts with those famous words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's a very different type of narrative. But all four of the Gospels talk about John the Baptist and explain that he is not the Messiah. And they need to do that because John was a contemporary of Jesus and he had a sizable following even after his death. We know that his disciples were around until at least uh, well into the second century. So the gospel writers needed to make it clear that um, it's Jesus, not John, who is the promised one, the Messiah, the son of God. And so Mark begins with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. The good news, the gospel is a new thing. It's just beginning. It's a new way of being, a new reality, God's reality that's breaking in. And John the Baptist declares this new way first. He tells people to repent, to think again, and to uh, think and live in a new way and to be baptized, to be washed clean of their old ways of living and to have a fresh start as members of a new community. But Mark makes it very clear that although John the Baptist was the first, the good news is that of Jesus. John is the messenger who prepares the way for Jesus, just as was foretold by the prophets. But it's Jesus that we need to focus on. He is the son of God. He will not only proclaim this new way, but he will embody it and dramatically demonstrate it. And we see that through the next four stories, uh, the stories of uh, Jesus's baptism, his temptation calling of the first disciples and an exorcism. And we're going to briefly look at each of these four stories and think about um, what they all mean for us today as we go into a new year. So first, Jesus' baptism. Mark describes this event with characteristic brevity. It takes up just three verses, uh, which we'll just read again. Um, at, that, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, just a few verses earlier, you might remember, Mark told us that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it's pretty shocking, really, to find Jesus going to John for baptism. We, we might not be shocked by it because we've heard this story so many times. But for the early uh, you know, first followers of Jesus, it would no doubt have seemed, I think, almost blasphemous. Jesus is undergoing a rite that is for the forgiveness of sins. So what, what is all that about? 
he's voluntarily humbly submitting to John's authority as the baptizer. He doesn't move in and take over. You know, he doesn't say, you're right. Oh, thanks, John. You can step aside now. I, I, I'm here. I'll take it from here. He joins the crowd. He joins the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees and the uh, tax collectors and the peasants and everyone else in requesting baptism from John. So no wonder the four gospel writers all felt the need to make it very clear that John the Baptist was not the Messiah. He prepared the way, but he himself was not the one. In fact, in, in Matthew's account of this story, um, there's an argument between uh, John and, and Jesus, or, or there's a, an objection. John says, no, 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 you shouldn't be baptized by me. I should be baptized by you. But Mark doesn't make a big deal of this. He doesn't try to explain what's going on here. Within these first few verses, Mark has presented Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, who is baptized alongside ordinary broken people in need of forgiveness. And so encapsulated in these few verses, quite brilliantly, I think, is the essence of the incarnation. Jesus, the Son of God, identifies with human humanity in its brokenness and in its need to repent. Jesus has not come to powerfully uh, conquer humanity, but to be with us, even in our brokenness, to be one of us, to come alongside of us. He's not coming judgment to point the finger and say, you need to repent. You're guilty. Rather, he joins us in that journey. Through the incarnation, God becomes one with humanity, um, even in our brokenness. And of course, we see that throughout the gospel. In Jesus' love and acceptance of people that are sinners, of those who respectable and religious people shun. And we're respectable people, right? Oh, some of you aren't, but most of us. <laughs> now, we, are, we, we do that. We point fingers at other people and say, they're the problem. They're the, they're the bad guys, not us. But the incarnation is the exact opposite of that. This is Jesus saying, I'm one of you. The baptism of Jesus shockingly demonstrates God's identification with, God's oneness with humanity, broken humanity. And then we read that as Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens are torn apart, ripped apart, and the spirit descends as a dove. This word for torn apart, schizo in the um, Greek, is violent language. It's dramatic language. It seems to be expressing God's passion and all God's pent-up longing for a relationship with humanity. A, a relationship, a, a longing that we uh, read about in the, in the prophets down through the centuries. A longing for there to be no barrier, no obstacle to our oneness with God. God's presence, God's reality breaks through the heavens, not with judgment, but gentle, peaceful as a dove. The spirit of God comes down to earth and rests on Jesus. Now, obviously, this is figurative language. Heaven is not up in the sky and God's spirit is not a literal dove. Heavens are not literally torn apart. But the writer is graphically showing that in Jesus, the divide between heaven and earth is removed. Jesus is bringing heaven to earth. Mark uses this word schizo, torn apart, one other time in his gospel. And that's right at the end when Jesus is on the cross. We read, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The use of this word schizo forms a literary bookends. The whole story of Jesus represents the destruction of the barrier between God and humanity. Jesus is the embodiment of heaven and earth coming together. 
Jesus is a portal, so to speak, the way to union with the divine. Jesus is the bearer of the spirit of God. John the Baptist uh, told us in the first few verses of Mark 1 that Jesus would baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Water and spirit are metaphors in scripture. Water represents a human experience, human reality, and the spirit represents the divine. Jesus brings the divine reality to humanity. He baptizes, he immerses us with the spirit, enabling us to experience oneness with God. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. God identifies Jesus as the beloved son, but this too echoes the Christmas story. In Luke's gospel, we read that the angels appear to the shepherds and announce the birth of Jesus with these words, peace on earth and goodwill to those with whom God is well pleased. It's the same word, eudokia. We too are the beloved children of God. Jesus identifies with our brokenness and we identify with Jesus in his belovedness. In the second story, Jesus is tempted. And again, this is a very short story. It's just um, two verses. We read, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So immediately after Jesus had joined humanity in our process of repentance, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness. Actually, the word, word there is more than just sent out. It's cast out or thrown out. Again, it's, it's dramatic language. It's the word um, that's used when Jesus casts out demons. So Jesus is cast out into the wilderness where we have this vivid enactment of good versus evil. Uh, to the Jewish people, the wilderness was a place of testing, a place of being trained by God as God's children. The Jewish people escaped slavery in Egypt and went into the wilderness and spent 40 years there learning to trust God and to obey God. Except they did not do a good job of that. In fact, they failed miserably. Time and time again, they disobeyed. They rebelled against God, despite God's provision and care for them. But here, Jesus symbolically does what humanity could not do. Jesus is tempted by Satan. He lives out in the wilderness among the wild animals, facing danger, facing deprivation, but he is not overcome. Some commentators view the presence uh, of the wild animals not as adding to the drama, not as a representative of danger and evil reflecting the story of the Jewish people's escape from slavery, but rather they see it as a peaceful scene, as Jesus being with the wild animals and, uh, pose, and them posing no threat. Um, they think uh, that here we see in Jesus a return to uh, the state that was in the Garden of Eden, that, that picture of um, harmony in creation that we also see referenced in the prophets. Uh, you might remember that phrase that the Isaiah uses, the lion lies down with the lamb. In this interpretation, Jesus not only stands firm against evil, he not only does what humanity could not do in being an obedient son of God, but he also restores shalom, peace and wholeness to the situation. He brings wild animals and angels together. He brings earth and heaven together in harmony. Well, either way you interpret the wild animals, we see in this chapter, Jesus not only standing firm against evil, but overcoming evil with good, bringing light into the darkness, bringing 
wholeness and peace where there was brokenness and chaos. Extending the kingdom of God, the reality of God on earth. And we're going to reverse the order of the last two stories and look at the exorcism now because that dramatically demonstrates this point. So let's uh, read those verses again. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who has authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So Mark is quite insistent here that what we are seeing is something new. This is something people have not experienced before. This is the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. He has authority. He's able to enact real change, to overcome darkness with light, to overcome evil with good. We have two kinds of spirit in this chapter. We um, saw the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, come on Jesus gently and peaceably like a dove. But that same spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness. The, the, it, this is a powerful spirit, a purposeful spirit. And here we see a man with an impure spirit. And we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know how um, that impurity was manifest uh, in that man's life. But it clearly wasn't peaceable. It caused the man to cry out and to shriek and to shake violently. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus casts out the impure spirit. Mark here is painting a picture of two forces of good and evil on a collision course. Jesus is cast out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be attacked by evil. And then Jesus comes back and goes out into the world to attack evil through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us probably don't think in terms of good and evil spirits. Um, and when we read uh, passages like this in scripture, um, I, I think we usually see a very different worldview to our own. With the growth of science, we have other ways of diagnosing and, and describing mental and physical illness. But even if we don't believe in literal or impure, literal evil or impure spirits, we've all experienced evil in our lives. And not just things that we do wrong or things people do to us, but as forces forces like addictions that control us or patterns of behavior that we find ourselves trapped or emotions that or emotions or experiences that haunt us impulses that drive us voices in our heads voices in our heads societal forces that in some ways control us and oppress us and we know we need to confront them and that we need God's help to confront them 
We need what Jesus has. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love, to overcome evil with good, to expand the kingdom of God on earth. And this is what we're called to. Which brings us to our fourth act in this drama, Jesus' call to follow me. We read that um, here. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, repairing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, this story might not sound as dramatic as the other three that we've read, but I think it does have its own kind of drama. It's, it's human drama. There is an abruptness and an absoluteness to this story, a sense of urgency. The time is now, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come near. So come and follow me right now. And Mark presents in this story an immediate and complete response on the part of the disciples. At once, they leave everything and follow Jesus. There's no discussion about the relative merits of staying or going. Um, there's no finishing up what they're doing first and saying their goodbyes. They just leave everything behind. They leave their old way of life, their old ways of thinking. And this is what repentance is, leaving the old reality behind and stepping into the new. Repent, says Jesus, and follow me. Become like me. Just as Jesus became like us, followed us into the baptism of repentance. So Jesus calls us to become like him, baptized not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit empowered by the spirit to extend the kingdom of God, to overcome evil with good, to partner with God in transforming the world. And this is not a once and done kind of a deal. Okay, I repented now, you know, it's all good. It's not like a half-baked uh, New Year's resolution, you know, the kind where you decide from this day forward, I will, uh, you know, eat healthily. And then two days later, you give up because you've finished all the cookies off or, you know, whatever it is. Not that I would do that. Um, but this is not about trying harder. This is a journey, a journey that we take together with Jesus. And it's not an easy journey. It's often a struggle. And we see in, even in this opening chapter uh, indications that this is a struggle. We see Jesus facing off against evil in the wilderness, a place of danger and deprivation. We learn in a side comment that John the Baptist is thrown into prison. And in the rest of Mark's gospel, um, we learn that following Jesus, journeying with Jesus, certainly was a struggle for the disciples. And not just externally through opposition, but internally. They had doubts and fears. Um, they, they got it wrong a lot. They misunderstood the message. Uh, Jesus rebuked them several times for a lack of faith and a, and a refusal to, uh, an unwillingness to believe. They abandoned Jesus when he needed them most. They locked themselves away after he died. Jesus came to them again and again and again with the same message. Repent and follow me. Leave behind your old thinking, your old reality, and step into the new. Discipleship is a continual process of repeatedly repenting and following, failing and returning, seeing more and responding more, 
having epiphanies and living out the implication of those epiphanies. When Jesus called Simon and Andrew, James and John to follow him, he was inviting them into an apprenticeship, into an opportunity to watch and imitate. That, of course, was how people learned their trades uh, back at that time. They didn't go off to college or uh, watch a lot of uh, tutorials on YouTube. Um, they would uh, work alongside and under the guidance of a master tradesman. They watched what he did, and then they did the same. They tried it for themselves. And the more they watched and imitated, the better they became. Uh, and that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. Maya Angelou, one, uh, who's a uh, one of her poems we looked at during Advent, she famously said this, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. There is a rhythm to this. As we see more of the reality of God, God's reality, this new reality, we repent, we let go of the old reality, our old ways of doing things, and we live in the new way, the way of self-sacrificial love. And the more we live in that way, the more we see of God's reality. And the invitation to enter into this cycle of repentance and following is held out to everyone by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Reading from the message version, Jesus says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Following Jesus is a journey, and sometimes it can be hard to see if we're making any progress. But let's not become discouraged. Let's not give up. Let's keep watching and imitating, repenting and following. So to wrap this up, what does all this mean for us? How does the drama of epiphany challenge us today? Well, firstly, uh, there is a sense of disruption in this chapter. The abruptness and the urgency and the use of almost violent words communicate that this was not just a normal Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever it was. Something new was happening, and it's happening now, immediately, all at once. Mark makes no mention of whatever it was that Jesus was doing before um, this this point in the story. He doesn't seem interested in his backstory. What matters is now, because right now the kingdom of God is near. Whatever Jesus had been doing previously, that all changes now. The Holy Spirit casts him out into the wilderness, takes him away from his familiar life. And then Jesus returns and calls people to follow him, to leave behind their familiar lives. This is all very disruptive, but disruptive in a good way. It's an opportunity to see things in a new way. Perhaps some of us are experiencing disruption in an area of our lives now. Um, things might not be playing out the way we expected or, or the way we wanted them to, or the way they always have been. We might be resisting that disruption. We might be trying to avoid it, ignore it. We might be trying to cling on to what we know. But are there aspects of this disruption that could actually be healthy for us? That could be opportunities for growth as we go into this new year. Are they an invitation to see things in a new way? Second, even if we are not feeling particularly disrupted, are there areas where we need an epiphany, where we need enlightenment? When we look at Jesus and see how he lived, his way of self-sacrificial love, in light of that, are there relationships or situations in our own lives where we need to rethink? 
Jesus, the son of God, so closely identified with broken humanity that he was baptized as one of us. Can we similarly see others as one of us, their needs as our needs, their well-being as essential to our well-being? And can we extend that sense of oneness, not just to the people we like, not just to the people we love, but to those that we might even view as enemies? And third, this idea of rhythm. Are we being apprentices to Jesus? Are we looking at his way and imitating it? Are we learning the unforced rhythms of grace? Are we repenting and following, knowing better and doing better? Or have we become stagnant? Are we fine with actually just staying as we are and not looking to grow? Perhaps this new year is a time to disrupt that pattern of complacency. And then finally, perseverance. Discipleship is a journey and it's rarely an easy one. But let's not give up. Let's come back again to Jesus. Let's keep company with him and learn to live freely and lightly. Let's allow the spirit to descend upon us like a dove, to equip us and empower us as we imitate Jesus in being light to the world, overcoming evil with good, extending the kingdom of God. So we're going to take a few moments now, and if the band want to come back up on the, on the stage, we're just going to take a few minutes to sit with this and to invite God to speak to us at the start of this new year and uh, to bring to mind anything that's appropriate for us where we are right now. So we're just going to take a, a couple of minutes of quiet, and then I'll close us in prayer. God, we are one with you now and forever. Help us to see that. We are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased. I pray that that fact would seep right down into the very core of our being. Strengthen us, embolden us, help us to be imitators of you in bringing light and love to our world. Amen.